Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is a joint enterprise between myself and Bill Reel. It is part two of our analysis of the devotional given at BYU-Idaho, September 18th, 2018, given by the son of Apostle and member of the First Presidency, Henry B. Eyring. The son's name is the same except with a different middle initial. It is Henry J. Eyring. He's the president of BYU-Idaho who gave this devotional address in part one. Bill and I discussed the first problem as we see it that he discusses in his devotional speech, that being his conversation with his father about the contents of the book of Abraham and about how the son had encountered at his work where he was serving as a law clerk some 30 years ago, an allegation that the book of Abraham had been invalidated due to recent research. He talked to his dad, asked him about the question. His father doesn't deal with the recent research. He doesn't deal with the allegation. He doesn't deal with anything from an intellectual point of view. Instead, he simply asks his son, well, have you read the book of Abraham? His son says, yes. And his dad asks, how do you feel when you read it? And his son says, good. And his dad says, what else do you need to know? So we talked about that from an anti-intellectual point of view. From the point of view of a general authority giving his son, a law clerk, that answer, and then looking at it as his son, who now 30 years later is the president of BYU-Idaho, ostensibly an institution of higher learning and higher education, relating that story to the over 12,000 members of the student body who are present in attendance to listen to it. Now, that was one part of the problem that we saw with the devotional given by Henry J. Eyring. But there's a second part that comes up later on. And actually, this part is tied into the story. He told you the first story about an anti-intellectual approach to criticisms of the church by how you feel about it in order to lay the groundwork for part two of his talk, which is how you can use good feelings about the church and good feelings about the repentance process in order to defuse any criticism that you may encounter about the church. In fact, he calls the temptation 
to criticize the church or its leaders, past or present. He covers all of his bases. He also talks about the doctrine of the church. That any time that you feel that inclination, that's a temptation that's being put there by the devil. Yes, he makes it that clear. Satan is the one in charge of this temptation. If you yield to that temptation to criticize the church or to doubt the church, that's a victory for Satan. In addition to calling the LDS church the Mormon church, that's a victory for Satan too. And instead, what he will go on to say is that the correct response to this temptation is instead of doubting the church or questioning the church or engaging in any kind of intellectual inquiry regarding claims or allegations or doubts about the church, the correct response is to simply turn that criticism on yourself, find something in your own personal character that's out of line, and spend your time correcting that because that's the real source of the problem, not the church or its leaders. The problem is you. Is that enough of an introduction, Bill? Did you have anything you wanted to add? I think you got everything except for bath time theology that uh, that the Iring boys had with their mom when they were getting their bath, and uh, it was worked out that all of them would surely make the celestial kingdom probably. Probably, yes. Surely they will, probably, and he'll get to that later on in the story. It's also interesting to note for me, Bill, and we'll get to the audio here in a second, where I think that the audience will find that I'm pretty spot on in what I'm recounting, is that his testimony begins with being in bed with his mom, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but he and his brother, who I guess is about the same age as he is, being in bed with their mom, and it's nighttime, they're tucked in, they're ready for bed, and his mom is reading to them out of the pages of the Book of Mormon. And what Henry J. Eyring recounts is feeling a warm, nice feeling that he got from this experience, which is repeated over and over, probably every night in the Eyring household. The father doesn't seem to be present, but he's out running the university at that time's Rick's college and working his way up the apostolic ladder, so he can't be around that much. But the interesting thing to me is that Henry J. Eyring associates the nice, pleasant, good, warm feeling he has from this experience, not from being tucked in and leaning up against his mom while she's reading a book to him and his brother before bedtime, which I think would be a reasonable interpretation. Instead, he links that good, warm feeling to the fact that she's reading to him from the pages of the Book of Mormon. And this becomes his touchstone for his testimony that the Book of Mormon is true. And anytime he feels good, warm feelings thereafter, that ends up being an additional testimony to him that the Book of Mormon is true, and that the church is true, and that the leaders of the church are led by God. Play the tape. But for the last 30 years, it has caused me to reflect on my testimony of the Book of Abraham and the other works of Scripture revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith, especially the Book of Mormon. I cannot prove to other people the divinity of these books, but as I read them, they repeatedly prove themselves to me through a warm feeling that first came as mother read them aloud while Stuart and I snuggled next to her in bed. As I grew older, I discovered another source of testimony that our Latter-day Scriptures are true. Thanks to mother, I knew Scripture stories about people who had repented and received forgiveness of their sins. The stories of Enos and Alma the Younger became precious to me in my teenage years when I recognized the need for heart-changing repentance. Responding to the Spirit's prompting, I followed the examples of Enos and Alma, praying for forgiveness and peace. 
when those feelings came to me as they had to them, I knew in both my heart and my mind that those stories are true. I could not deny that Enos and Alma the Younger were real people whose stories had been compiled by the prophet Mormon and revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. Okay, a couple of points here. First off, he talks about his mother because she read to him from the Book of Mormon about Enos and Alma the Younger. Those stories were precious to him. He follows their examples, praying for forgiveness and peace. And when those feelings came to me, I knew that those stories are true. That's the first logical leap that President Eyring, I'll just refer to him as President Eyring. And if I'm talking about President Eyring, I'm talking about Henry J. Eyring. Otherwise, I'm going to go crazy trying to remember the middle initial. I'm talking about the gentleman giving the talk who's the president at BYU-Idaho. So President Eyring says, when he prays for forgiveness and peace and those feelings come to him, he knows that those stories about Enos and Alma the Younger are true. And he says, I could not deny that Enos and Alma the Younger were real people. Now, that is a huge logical leap, at least to my mind, because what it's saying is I could sit down and I could write a story about some character that I created out of my mind who felt bad, went out into the woods, prayed for a remission of sins, and felt peace and forgiveness. And according to this logic, if President Eyring prays for peace and forgiveness, then he has just confirmed that the fictional character I made up is a real person. That's how bad this logical leap is. I will also say one other thing here before we go on, because he makes this logical leap even more, because he's going to say, I knew more than that. And he's going to talk about how, because he gets feelings of forgiveness and peace when he does something wrong and prays for forgiveness, that he knows a whole plethora of things that have no logical relationship to it, even above and beyond Enos and Alma the Younger being real people. I just want to note for the record, that Enos in the Book of Mormon actually did go out into the woods hunting for game and got down, felt bad, prayed for forgiveness, and he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee. So that part is correct. Alma the Younger, however, is a completely different animal. Alma the Younger did not go out anywhere feeling bad about his sins and pray for forgiveness. Alma the Younger goes about with his four cohorts seeking to destroy the church of God. They are in the middle of the wickedest thing you could possibly do, which is trying to destroy the church. And they're not praying for forgiveness about it. They're feeling very good about what they're doing. And what happens to them is that an angel appears and strikes Alma down. And he is in an unconscious state for three days. And yeah, we find out later in Alma 36 where he's recounting at first person about what happened while his lights were out, that he thought about what his dad had preached about Jesus when Jesus coming and he cried for mercy. So yeah, there is that point about after he gets stricken down by an angel appearing to him, yeah, he does finally uh, ask for forgiveness. Actually, he calls upon the Lord for mercy, I think is what the story says. And he receives it. But it is not at all the same thing as Enos. So when President Eyring is talking about Enos and Alma the Younger as being people who prayed for forgiveness and peace, I think that he's right on the Enos story. I think that he's stretching it on the Alma the Younger story. So my two cents here is this. There, if we're going to say every time we feel that good feeling, we can take from that that these things are historically true, 
that, that seems to fall short. You're, you're saying like, that's a pretty incredible claim. And now I want to talk about maybe like boots on the ground, rubber meets the road. Just today, the Deseret News publishes an article about this Book of Mormon that had been uh, supposedly uh, written in, owned by, written in uh, by Elvis Presley. And the article on the Deseret News talks about how uh, teachers in the church had for decades, this book was dated 1972, it had lots of markings throughout the Book of Mormon, and in the beginning um, is the name of Elvis Presley, and then at the end is uh, this kind of like last hopeful wish for Heavenly Father to help him come to the truth of this book. And for decades, this book had been proposed to be authentic and legit. Sunday school teachers had shared this story in their classes. The Deseret News article acknowledges that. People had felt the spirit about this story. And yet now, the church and the Deseret News come forward with this article and say, we figured it out. This is actually just a fake. When I look back at my time in the church RFM, I am constantly looking back at the fact that I built my testimony on faith-promoting stories, many of which have turned out not to be true. The Sweetwater Crossing didn't happen the way we said it did. The Brigham Young Transfiguration is so problematic that that almost assuredly did not occur. The John Taylor uh, watch saving his life when the uh, mob uh, marched up the steps at Carthage Jail and shot into the room, we now know that that watch was never struck by a bullet. And there was, and this is a, a maybe a one that's going to be a little bit of a stretch for me to pull out of my memory. But when I first joined the church, again, I'm 17 years old when that happens. I'm all in. I'm, I'm very dedicated. I want to know everything. And I come across this faith-promoting rumor that I assumed was true. And it was this story. Maybe you'll remember part of this. Maybe, maybe this will be something that uh, is deep back in, in your experience and memories. I came across a story about a Latter-day Saint who was in a old library and came across a document, and I believe it was written by like a Catholic priest. And the document talks about in the last days, there shall be this church and they shall move to the mountains. And it basically prophesied of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I took this story as true. It had a lot of detail in it. Uh, and I even went around, I, I shared the story in sacrament meeting early on as a member when I gave a talk. I took it on my home teaching appointments to the families that I went and home taught, shared it as a faith-promoting story. I and those that I shared it with felt the spirit of the story. But I came to find out about six months later that it was just a false faith-promoting rumor. There wasn't any historicity to the story at all. And when you come to grips with how many stories Mormonism tells that are faith-promoting, that right now, over the last three, four, five years, and the next two decades, most likely, that we're going to have to pull out of our curriculum and adjust to, the reality is that we all felt good about a lot of stories, and a lot of those stories just ain't true. Yes, and strangely enough, the stories that we tend to feel good about are the ones that support us in our spiritual and religious beliefs. I, I along with thousands of others, felt the spirit when Paul H. Dunn told his stories. And yet, 
am I supposed to draw from that, that his stories were true, that they actually happened? Well, frankly, that is kind of what I drew from it. And that is how I felt. And then we find out, no, he made it up. That causes a huge restructuring for people. At least it did for me that feeling the spirit confirmed to me that something that somebody else is saying is true is not necessarily a valid way to determine its truthfulness. By the way, I also I also heard this um, Elvis Presley story. It's tied into the Osmonds. It was the Osmonds' mother who was like the spiritual mentor to Elvis Presley when he's doing his drugs and he's lost and he's trying to find his way and she gives him a copy of the Book of Mormon. She reads it with him and all this other stuff and you got the, the Book of Mormon that's uh, allegedly signed and marked up and initialed by him and even written in by the king. And this is a testimony builder for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And now it turns out that this is another fraud. This is an intentional fraud, at least apparently the evidence is going to be presented in the upcoming issue of BYU Studies by the scholar who actually did the analysis. But this is going to be another fraud that created spiritual feelings among members of the church. And it's, a, it's going to be an intentional fraud. This can't be a fraud and it be an accident. You don't accidentally have put Elvis Presley's name in something and try and make it look like it's Elvis Presley who initialed it and read through it and wrote all these things in it. This is going to be an intentional fraud. Who did it? I don't know. Was it, you know, Mrs. Osmond? Was it Donnie and Marie's mom who did this? I don't know. I'm not here to point fingers. All I'm saying is it's an intentional fraud that created a spiritual experience in the hearts of many people, including myself, who heard the story. And having said all that, I do want to say that when I'm talking about Alma the Younger earlier, um, I don't mean to sound hyper nitpicky on that story. Uh, I've listened to this talk by President uh, Henry J. Eyring a number of times, and I've had a lot of time to reflect on it. And the Enos part I knew, but the Alma the Younger part, I just sort of accepted as him being correct until I started thinking about it. And then I thought, wait, Alma the Younger does not stand as an example of what President Henry J. Eyring is saying he stands as an example of. And so it's hyper-technical. It might be seen as nitpicky. My concern is that he is a person in a leadership position as the president of the university at BYU-Idaho. He is the son of an apostle, a member of the First Presidency, and he gets a lot of Mormon cred scale points for that. But the fact is to me that he doesn't seem to know his scriptures very well, even though he has a testimony and an unshakable testimony. We'll find out that the Book of Mormon is true and that these characters are real. He isn't super well acquainted with the stories themselves. At least he doesn't give that appearance from this one example. So, so you're saying the honka honka burning love that Elvis felt wasn't even real? Well, thank you very much. Yeah, baby. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> I do a great Viva Las Vegas, but I'm not going to do it here, okay? <laughs> maybe maybe somewhere along the way we'll play some Elvis music throughout the episode in the background. <laughs> the, the other point that I think needs to also be made, and, and you make a good point, which is he's lumping stories of Mormon prophets as if they all carried out the same action, when in reality, anybody who knows even from a surface level of the Book of Mormon, the story of these ancient characters... Um, we recognize quickly that Elma the Younger did not have anything near the experience that Enos did in the way that uh, 
President Eyring here is imposing. So you're right. So on the, so on one hand, he's giving this talk, and for every person who feels the spirit during this talk, now they're left to draw that what he said is historically accurate when it's demonstrably not. The other thing that just has to be said is I wonder if he were to check in with the top 15, his dad and, and his dad's associates, and say, are you okay if I impose the Book of Mormon as absolutely historical in terms of the char- the figures that are in there? The church is right now in the middle of a 10 to 20 year plan, not to make the Book of Mormon non-historical, but to open up space that the non-literal, non-historical believer um, can still find a way to stay in the church. And so as he's imposing some really a strong rigidity in what he's saying, his dad and his dad's associates are in the middle of softening that very same That is an interesting point that you make there. But you're right. Regardless of what's going on behind the scenes or what his dad's doing, it is beyond question that he is affirming an extremely, absolutely literal interpretation of the Book of Mormon that Enos and Alma, the younger, were real people. And he'll expand it beyond that as we get a little further. By the way, as an aside... And by the way, he's he's doing it with logical fallacies that are demonstrably shown to not be accurate ways to discern whether something's true. Yeah, that's another problem. That's definitely another problem. That could be another podcast about elevated feelings or heightened elevation of feelings as being a guide to uh, truth when people from all sorts of different religions experience the same elevated feelings when talking about their religion or bearing testimony of their religion. So yeah, it's not exclusive to Mormonism, absolutely. I did want to add that Alma the Younger is an interesting person, not only because he doesn't fit into the paradigm into which President Henry J. Eyring tries to cram him, but also because Alma the Younger is the person who doesn't go out and feel bad and repent of his sins and feel forgiveness. He's the one who has an angel appear to him. And if I were speaking a bit tongue-in-cheek, it's possible he doesn't mention the angel because the LDS Church has put angels on the endangered species list. And I'm thinking here of Elder Oak's comment from a couple of years ago to a question that was asked to him by a young lady, a member of the church, about what she can do and how she can pray so she can have the same kind of experience as Alma the Younger in having an angel appear to her. Do you remember what Elder Oaks told her in response, Bill? Uh, That he had never had that experience, that his brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve and in the First Presidency, as far as he knew, they had not had that experience, and that it doesn't seem maybe uh, natural to ask for that experience in order to have some kind of special testimony of Jesus. Right, and hopefully you can play the tape on that here, because that bears repeating. That quote from Elder Oaks, which was not done in a publicly televised or recorded event, but it was done in a more private event where apparently someone violated the rules and brought along a recording device and recorded what it was that he was saying. And we caught him off the cuff and really telling the truth as it is. Yeah. And we will make sure I know exactly where that audio is because we've just recently created a audio and document repository and that uh, audio is part of that repository. So I will be sure to uh, share that with the Nice episode. plug, Bill. 
So when President Henry J. Eyring doesn't mention the angel appearing to Alma the Younger, maybe there is method to his madness. My question is, what should we pray for to receive this same testimony, if not conversion, that Alma the Younger experienced for our friends that are in I missed the words Alma the Younger, uh, without which I couldn't understand that very fine question from Heather. What should you pray for to have the kind of experience that Alma the Younger had? I don't think you're likely to have the kind of experience that Alma the Younger had. Remember, he had a miraculous appearance of an angel and, uh, and really got hit over the head spiritually. Most of us don't have that kind of experience. But I interpret your question, Heather, as being how can we get the kind of, of uh, testimony that he received. I don't think we'll, we'll get it like Paul did on the road to, where an angel appeared to him or where Alma the Younger had that startling experience. Uh, the Lord gives a few of those kinds of experiences and they're recorded in the scriptures to catch our attention and teach us the answer. But I've never had an experience like that. And I don't know anyone among the first presidency or quorum of the twelve who had that kind of experience. Yet every one of us knows of a certainty the things that Alma knew. But it's just that Unless the Lord chooses to do it another way, as he sometimes does, for millions and millions of his children, the testimony settles upon us gradually like so much dust on a windowsill or so much dew on the grass. One day you didn't have it, and another day you did, and you don't know which day it happened. That's the way I got my testimony. Now in the next part, Henry J. Eyring goes on to make more logical leaps and saying what it is that he knows because of feelings of forgiveness and peace coming to him when he's done something wrong and he asks for forgiveness. He not only knows that Alma, the Younger, and Enos are real people, he knows more than that. And that's where we're going to pick up where he says, I knew more than that. And wait till you hear what it is that he knows because of feelings of forgiveness and peace. Yet I knew more than that. I knew that in this dispensation the Lord has restored his gospel in its fullness and his church in its completeness with priesthood leaders authorized to speak for him. Their personalized counsel given to me both over the pulpit and also one-on-one -on -one, changed my life. I knew that they spoke for Heavenly Father because heeding their counsel helped me find peace and happiness when I could obtain it nowhere else. Thus, I gained an unshakable testimony that the church restored to Joseph Smith is still led by a living prophet and by other leaders called under his direction. Okay, stop the tape. So now, because he gets feelings of peace and happiness when he prays for forgiveness, he not only knows that Al Alma the Younger and Enos are real people, he knows the Book of Mormon is true. He knows that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And he knows that the current leaders of the church have the priesthood of God and that they lead the church under God's direction. He goes from feeling peace and happiness when he asks for it in prayer 
to now knowing that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the true church of God, the one and only true church of God upon the face of the whole earth. He also says he knows this because heeding the counsel of his leaders gives him peace he could not find anywhere else, which prompts the question in my mind, well, where else has he sought for peace other than in and through the LDS church and its leaders? Obviously nowhere. He hasn't looked at any other kind of religious system. He hasn't sought for any kind of spiritual peace from anywhere else. And yet he says, because heeding their counsel gave me peace, I could not find anywhere else. Well, that rings kind of hollow when he hasn't looked anywhere else. Also, if we take his logic as correct, it runs into two possibilities, both of which strike me as untenable. He says that when he does something wrong, he prays for forgiveness and he feels peace and happiness and that those feelings make it so that the LDS church is true. Now, there's one of two things going on here. Either feelings of forgiveness and peace are exclusively the province of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In other words, nobody outside the LDS Church prays for forgiveness and feels peace and forgiveness. That only happens in the LDS Church, which is probably unlikely. I think you'll agree with me on that, Bill. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that when anybody else outside the LDS Church does pray for forgiveness and feels peace, then what that is really doing for them is testifying that the LDS church is the one true church. And that seems kind of unlikely to me as well. So if we take his rationale and apply it in the different ways it can be applied, which is basically only two that I can think of, maybe you can think of more than I can, Bill. And both of those possibilities lead to equally untenable conclusions, then it's a good indicator that his basis for his reasoning is probably off. So I'm with you 100%. And, and as you were saying that idea, as you were uh, articulating that idea, I was left to wonder how many Scientologists feel peace and happiness with their beliefs. How many Jehovah's Witness, uh, Jehovah's Witness feel peace and happiness with their belief? How many Seventh-day Adventists? How many evangelicals, how many Catholics, how many Muslims, how many Muslim extremists feel joy and peace with their beliefs? Certainly, those aren't all testimonies that the LDS church is true. That would be absurd. And on the other hand, what about the Mormons who feel anger and betrayal? What about the Latter-day Saints who don't find peace when they start diving into the messiness of Mormonism? What about the idea that um, we say the Holy Ghost is this huge truth teller and yet so many Mormons right now seem confused and upset and frustrated with what they perceive as deception and dishonesty in our church, its history, and even in its scripture. Again, you've made the point, these aren't ways to tell truth. The Elvis story alone that we shared earlier hits the nail on the head. There's too many stories in Mormonism that people felt the Holy Ghost about that aren't true. I had a home teacher we went to his house because I didn't really want him at my home 
because the guy had a troublesome past. So we went to his house to be home taught. That way, if something began to get off kilter, we could immediately just leave his home. Um, When we were in his home, he gave us a lesson one time about how only white people, like every all the all those who were of color, when they got to heaven, they would suddenly become white people. And he knew by the Holy Ghost that that was true. We have past prophets who knew that the curse of Cain or interracial marriage was of God. It was the very doctrine of the church. Surely those men felt the Holy Ghost testify to them. At the end of the day, the Holy Ghost, when you dive into this paradigm, it is useless. Oh, absolutely. And I do want to just go ahead and mention what you already know is that this uh, semi-crazy person that uh, he went over to hear this lesson from wasn't just making up stuff. He's actually repeating what's been taught by past prophets of the LDS church, that when we get to heaven, everybody's going to be white as white, just like Heavenly Father is, and just like Jesus Christ is. And the Book of Mormon even seems to take it one step further and say, you don't have to wait to get to heaven. If you got dark skin and you convert and you believe the gospel, then your skin is going to become white in this lifetime. Yeah, plus those in the lower two kingdoms get the good old TK smoothie. You cannot say that enough. What is wrong with you and the TK smoothie? You have to bring it up every time. Well, I guess I bring it up sometimes too. It's a it's a it funny a doctrine. Very, it's a hilarious doctrine. Joseph Fielding Smith, that's the guy you got to look to for that one. Joseph Fielding Smith. By the way, one other thing I want to say about that is that about no, the TK no, no, no. smoothie. Let's, let's leave the TK okay. smoothie for those in the lower <laughs> kingdoms, Bill. Okay. Uh, so what you said about getting feelings of anger by those who dive into the messiness that is Mormonism, well, that is where this talk is leading. And it is the next statement that he makes, which I hope you'll just play this one statement, then I can just rant about it, because I find this the single most offensive statement in the entire talk, is one of the main points of this talk is to prevent people from investigating criticisms or problematic issues relating to the church history and its doctrine. He actually says that because of the good feelings he gets when he prays for forgiveness, he finds it unnecessary to investigate any of the criticisms or claims about the church. Can you play the tape on that? Because of these life-changing experiences, I can transcend the occasional temptation to doubt what I know. When rumors and supposed discoveries about the church come up, I suspend judgment. I find it unnecessary to investigate or rethink my beliefs. I have a better way to renew my testimony. Okay, this is the part that drives me bananas. This is where Henry J. Eyring goes into full-on cult mode. He says, when rumors and supposed discoveries about the church come up. Now, notice, it is never anything that is actual. It is never anything that is real. Apparently, he's not going to tell his audience that nothing in the translation of the Joseph Smith papyri resembles anything that is in the book of Abraham. The book of Abraham that Joseph Smith claimed he received by translating what was on the papyri. He's not going to tell him that because that's not a rumor, Bill. That's not a supposed discovery. That is solid, hard historical fact. But whenever a member of the church who is a TBM or a general authority talks about these problems, it's always a rumor. It's always a supposed discovery. It's always something taken out of context. 
It's a lie. It's something that's been manipulated or twisted in some way. They never actually tell the audience that this is a fact. Not everything is a fact, but believe me, there's a whole host of facts that they don't want to let their audience know. They want to leave their audience with the impression that these are just rumors and supposed discoveries. That's part one. Part two is he's got a completely wonderful way of dealing with all these rumors and supposed discoveries about the church. He ignores them. He doesn't learn anything more about them. He pushes them away with both hands and says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Instead, he says, quote, I find it unnecessary to investigate. That is the most cultish thing I have heard recently from an LDS church leader, and it is the son of Henry B. Eyring, the apostle, and the president of an institution of higher learning that is owned and operated by the LDS church, BYU-Idaho. Anytime anything critical about the church comes up, his default position is, I find it unnecessary to investigate, or, he says, or rethink my beliefs. So no matter what facts are out there, no matter what history is out there, none of that is going to be a basis for Henry J. Eyring to rethink his beliefs. He knows what is true. It's what has been taught to him. It's what he has accepted. I expect it represents correlated orthodox 21st century Mormon doctrine. But he is not going to rethink his beliefs regardless of the evidence, and he's not going to investigate anything regardless of the evidence. I find this to be extremely cult-like mentality. And this is what he is teaching all the students at BYU, Idaho, and wanting them to emulate and do exactly the same way he does it. So this is, as you point out, this is a, again, we said this last episode, you're pointing at it right now. This is a president of a university of higher learning. Now you heard what he just said. And if you were to juxtapose that quote without assigning a name to it, without assigning a title to who's saying it, you were to juxtapose that quote with Dieter uh, Uchtdorf's uh, quote from his talk, What is Truth, January 13th, 2013. Elder Uchtdorf said this, Part of the reason for poor judgment comes from the tendency of mankind to blur the line between belief and truth. We too often confuse belief with truth, thinking that because something makes sense or is convenient, it must be true. Conversely, we sometimes believe truth or reject it because it would require us to change or admit that we are wrong. Often truth is rejected because it doesn't appear to be consistent with previous experiences. When the opinions or truths of others contradict our own, instead of considering the possibility that there could be information that might be helpful or augment or complement what we know, we often jump to conclusions or make assumptions that the other person is misinformed, mentally challenged, or even intentionally trying to, de to deceive. So there's the quote from 
Elder Uchtdorf, who was President Uchtdorf at the time, before he got the pink slip out of the first presidency. And if I were to ask you, RFM, which one of those sounds like it came from a president of a university of higher learning, you and I both would say the latter. You and I both would grab Uchtdorf's talk and hold it up and say, this is a university president talking about how we need to be willing to change and to think critically. But that's not the case. That's Dieter Uchtdorf. This is Elder Eyring's son, the former quote, and it comes off as somebody who is a backwoods country bumpkin. No offense to backwoods country bumpkins, by the way, because I think calling, making that connection might even be an insult to them. Ouch. Well, remember, though, this isn't just Henry J. Eyring. He is quoting his dad, Henry B. Eyring, on the Book of Abraham story to lay the foundation for making this argument. The critical examination of the book of Abraham doesn't count. His dad pushes it away. He doesn't find it necessary to investigate. His dad doesn't find it necessary to rethink his beliefs. All he does is ask his son, the speaker now, how it made him feel when he read it. His son says, it made me feel good. And Henry B. Eyring, the apostle says, what else do you need to know? So Henry J. Eyring, the son, is not saying this on his own. He's pulling his dad into this entire argument. And Grandpa Rocket Scientist Iring would be shaking his head in his grave as that quote took place. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I have a favorite little quotation. I don't know who said it, but it encapsulates what it is that you quoted um, President Uchtdorf, former President Uchtdorf, as having said, which is this. If an honest man discovers he is mistaken, he has two choices. He can either cease to be mistaken or he can cease to be honest. And you don't have any other choice. But, you know, President Eyring of, of BYU-Idaho, he never even gets there because the way he approaches thing is he's never going to discover he was mistaken because he's not going to investigate anything that challenges his current worldview. So I'm wondering which one he's become. Has he become... Uh... Remind me, you get the two choices where you can cease to become... You can cease to be mistaken or you can cease to be honest. Yeah, so so President Eyring of BYU-Idaho can cease to to be honest. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm messing it all up. No, it's okay. Oh my gosh. It's okay because President... Because he never even gets to there. He never even gets to the choice part because the whole statement is when an honest man discovers he is mistaken. He can either cease to be mistaken or he can cease to be honest. He never even gets to the the second part because he's not an honest man. Now, that's a horrible thing for me to say, so let me be very clear. He is not intellectually honest. A person who says they're not going to investigate anything that challenges their currently held beliefs is not intellectually honest. So he is not even an honest man. So it's when an honest man discovers he's mistaken. He's not an honest man. He's not intellectually honest. And therefore, he has set up a framework whereby he will never discover he's mistaken because he's not going to investigate anything that challenges his beliefs. And, and I thought, too, I might have said this in the first part, but what it tells me is that there's a, there's a working narrative going on here, which is that when the institutional church creates universities. It opens BYU. Uh, it opens Rick's College, which becomes BYU-Idaho. It's got, um, it's got a university in Hawaii. It's got 
uh, several universities across the country that are, if we get down to it, operated by the church. And the students at that university, they think they're signing up for a higher education. What they're actually signing up for is indoctrination. And the church is perfectly happy with that scenario. It's why the church-owned schools don't get uh, a certain amount of respect in the world. It's not because the church is picked on and marginalized and, and uh, people go after it because they don't like Mormonism. No, it's because the kind of education it offers is not the kind of education that other universities are offering. One is indoctrination, and the, one, and the other is a higher education. The church doesn't care whether you're really that good of a lawyer when you come out of BYU. What it cares about is that you're committed to the church as a full tithe payer and will sacrifice your authenticity for the rest of your life in order to show loyalty and to belong to this tribe. Excellent points. And now President Iring goes on to give the part of his talk which contains the bumper sticker slogan which has made this talk famous and which will make it go down in the annals of idiot Mormon talks. Can you play the tape on this one, Bill? Whenever I am tempted to doubt the church or any of its leaders, past or present, I need only to reevaluate my own spiritual state. I ask myself the question, am I true? I define the word true the way you may remember doing when assessing a true or false statement on a school test. To be true, all parts of a statement must be true. Any falseness, no matter how small, makes the whole statement false. By that standard, my answer to the question, am I true, is always no. Okay, notice how he puts this in the form of temptation. Anytime he thinks about doubting the church or any of its leaders, past or present, okay, we got to go all the way back to Joseph Smith and everybody in between up to the current president and all the other leaders, which his dad is one of, whenever I am tempted to doubt the church or any of its leaders. So this has got to be coming from Satan because he's the one who tempts people. Whenever I am tempted to doubt the church or any of its leaders, past or present, I need only to do what? To investigate? No, he's already put that off the table. He's not going to investigate. To rethink his beliefs? No, he's not going to do that. That's already off the table. No, instead, what he needs to do is to reevaluate my spiritual state. In other words, there is never any legitimate doubt of the church or any of its leaders because really the problem is not with the church. The problem is with me. I have some sins that I need to repent of. The problem is that I am a sinful person and the implicit message here is that it is because I am sinful that I am tempted to doubt the church or any of its leaders. Only a sinful person would do that, Bill. Therefore, if you criticize or doubt, just doubt the church or its leaders, it is because you are sinful and you need to repent. The other point here is how he compares this to a school test. He says in a multiple choice test that every element of the proposed answer has to be correct in order for the, the answer to be true. Any falseness no matter how small, he says, renders the entire statement false. 
And now he goes on to apply this to himself and says, you know, I am never completely true in the sense that I never obey all the commandments. I'm never perfect like Jesus was. There's always going to be something wrong with me. There's always going to be something false about me that I need to correct, that I need to repent of, that I need to take care of. But what he does not do is apply the exact same standard to the church or any of its leaders, past or present. I mean, what is good for the goose is good for the gander bill. So when he's talking about the church or any of its leaders, past or present, he does not apply the same standard of saying that any falseness, no matter how small, renders the entire church false. If the statement is, the LDS church is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, any falseness in that, no matter how small, renders the entire statement false. So using his own definition, if you're asking the question, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints the only true and living church upon the face of the earth? The answer has to be false. He's created a litmus test that, as you point out, doesn't hold up when you point it back at the church. The other thing he does, uh, it, when he says, you know, essentially, any time you think to doubt the church or its leaders. But let me ask RFM, am I allowed to doubt Brigham Young's blood atonement? Am I allowed to doubt... Brigham Young's Adam God doctrine? Am I allowed to doubt the racial statements that were imposed by prophets, seers, and revelators, namely George Albert Smith, uh, on race doctrines that they, those of color were less valiant or were cursed from the premortal existence um, or carried the curse of Cain or that interracial marriage was sin? Am I allowed to doubt when President Kimball writes down that masturbation leads to homosexuality? Am I allowed to uh, doubt when Boyd K. Packer says that being gay is a choice? See, the trouble is LDS prophets aren't very good at discerning God's mind and will. We've already disavowed hundreds of statements of past leaders. Joseph Fielding Smith saying the earth is 6,000 years old. Gordon B. Hinckley talking about what's inside the, the Hill Cumorah that the last battle took place. We could go on and on. There's hundreds of them. And yet we've disavowed them. We've walked away from them. We just write it off as being fallible human beings. But what President Henry J. Eyring is saying here is that essentially these men can do no wrong. And anytime you think they've done wrong, simply look in the mirror and ask if you've done something wrong. And that's entirely where your focus should be. You should never doubt that past leaders did something wrong, even though it's demonstrable that they have on hundreds upon hundreds of occasions. Yeah, exactly. You are not allowed by the terms of this talk to doubt any of that. But you see, you've already committed the cardinal sin here, Bill. You investigated. If you don't investigate, you never find this stuff out. And therefore, you will never have cause to doubt. Yeah, but on top of that, as I was talking to you while that recording was playing, this was off the air. The listeners didn't hear this. If you were to take this talk by Henry J. Eyring, and if... BYU, BYU-Idaho, and other church-owned schools were held to the same standard of higher education that other schools in this country are held to. This guy would be out of a job. You said he'd be fired. I said he'd be fired. 
This guy is giving an anti-intellectual talk. Any other university would right away see that this guy is not capable of critical thinking. Hence, he should not be leading an institution of higher learning where critical thinking is the main skill we try to teach to our young people when they go off to college or university. Yeah, absolutely. The chancellors would be firing him at any other university, but not at a Mormon-owned university where this type of teaching is not only tolerated, it is applauded. And gets you on the fast track to being a general authority. Absolutely. As we're going to find out later on, there's a quote from this part of his talk that Elder Oaks is so enamored with that he quotes it when he goes to BYU-Idaho and gives a speech the following month on October 30th of 2018. Oh yeah, he loves this idea of not doubting the leaders of the church. And anytime you're tempted to doubt, and he'll quote that part, turn a critical eye on yourself because the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our church leaders, but in ourselves that we have doubts. There is always some weakness I can identify, some failure requiring repentance. It could be a harm caused to myself or to others. It could also be a failure to do a good deed that was within my power. Upon identifying such a personal failure to be true, I take it to Heavenly Father in prayer. I try to emulate the Savior's disciples when, during the Last Supper, he announced that one of them would betray him. Each disciple wisely asked, Lord, is it I? Of course, if I have felt the need to ask this question, I probably have betrayed the Savior in some way. In answer to my prayers for guidance, the Holy Ghost may direct me to counsel with my immediate priesthood leaders, especially my father. More often, though, the stirrings of conscience sparked by the Holy Ghost lead me to private feelings of remorse with a related desire to make things right. That is especially the case when I have hurt someone by my acts or my failure to act. Following the Spirit's guidance, I try to right the wrong quickly. When this cycle of recognition and repentance is complete, I am not just relieved of the pain of feeling untrue. I have also reproven to myself that the Church and its sacred teachings are true. So, with what he just said, and, and he reiterates what he said in the previous quote, Here's the trouble. It's this idea that you can only have one or the other. Either the church can be false and you be perfect, or the church can be perfect and you be false. And he's suggesting that the church is perfect. We shouldn't even debate that. And the moment you want to doubt the church's uh, being true, and I don't mean perfect as in like it never makes any mistakes. So when I use the word perfect, I don't I don't mean that it is uh, without any kind of blemish, but rather that it is the Lord's church, as you pointed out earlier, RFM, the only true and living church with which the Lord is well pleased. Anytime someone feels a need to doubt that or to doubt a leader within it, they are to look at themselves. Here's the trouble. It's not an either or paradigm. So is it possible that both the Mormon church is not true? It is a false church. And the person who recognizes that also has some level of sin within themselves. Absolutely. 
The opposite side of the coin also doesn't work. So again, this is a wood tool that he's using. If I'm in Scientology and I look at Scientology and I figure out that, wait a minute, this religion is cray-cray and by no means is it what it claims to be. That same person could still also look in the mirror, look at themselves, and say, oh my goodness, I'm not perfect, hence Scientology must be perfect, and I'm going to do what Elder Uchtdorf also suggested, which is to doubt my doubts. The reality is, those kinds of either-or paradigms often aren't true, and they're set up as a logical fallacy to teach us that, oh, if I'm this way, then the church must be that. And the reality is, it doesn't have to be that. It can be neither, and it can be both. And in this instance, it is demonstrable that just because someone has some sin in their life doesn't make the religious institution they belong to true, and it doesn't work in any other church, so it sure as heck doesn't work in Mormonism either. And if we accept the general Christian proposition that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, then that means that every Christian church, which is composed entirely of sinners, is equally true. They, they are all the Lord's true and living churches with which he's well pleased. He's pleased RFM with all of them. Absolutely, at least according to this line of thinking. Now, I wrote a couple things down here when he was talking. And what I wrote was, when he says, I probably have betrayed the Savior in some way. Oh my goodness, wow. So now doubting the leaders is betraying the Savior. Now, seriously, I'm not kidding. Look at what he says and look at his logical train of thought. If you have doubts, Bill, it is because you are sinful. If you are sinful, you are betraying the Savior. Therefore, if you doubt the church or its leaders, past or present, you are betraying the Savior. He is painting this in highly dramatic and extreme terms. And he also says anytime he is tempted to doubt, he doesn't investigate, he doesn't rethink his beliefs, remember, but instead he looks at himself to find the sins that he needs to repent of. Now, this is a twofer. And I know that Henry J. Eyring is extremely pleased with himself for having come up with this idea because it takes care of two problems. Number one, when he feels better about repenting of a personal thing, excuse me, a personal sin, that means the church is true. But even before that, he has come up with a way to avoid dealing with critical issues of the church. So instead of dealing with it, you look at yourself instead, and then when you feel peace because you've corrected some error in your personality, or you have given forgiveness where you've withheld it, which he gives as an example, or you do a good deed where you haven't done it before, things that generally do give people good feelings about themselves. But when you get that good feeling, you have now proved the church is true, because you follow the teachings of the church to repent of your sins and receive forgiveness. And therefore, once again, you have proved the church is true. So this is the twofer, right? The twofer is that when Satan tempts you, and he will say this, when Satan tempts you to criticize the church, you resist that temptation, you assume the church is true, you look at yourself, you repent of your sins, you feel better, and not only have you resisted the temptation of Satan, which would lead you into a place where you doubted your testimony of the church, you now go into introspection, which gives you feelings of peace, which affirms the church is true. So there, Satan, in your face, 
that feels like. So I almost, I don't know. I, I got, I kind of weak in that moment as you were saying that there was, it felt like a lot of circular reasoning. It felt like logical fallacies. And I, I don't even know what to do with it because when we set ourselves up in ways that we say like, no matter what happens, I'm, I'm either working against the savior of the world or the church is true. Like that's a lose, lose, no matter what. And that's what it felt like he did here. The other thing I want to just make note of is there is a ton of victim shaming. There is a ton of blame the victim going on here. And again, he leaves open no option. You either are betraying the Savior or the church is true. Those are the only two options you're left with. And again, none of this adds up if it's allowed to be walked out in terms of its logic. No, you're right. It's a heads, I win, tails, you lose scenario. It's sort of a Kobayashi Maru scenario. It's a no-win situation. You throw that out about as much as I do the TK smoothie. (laughs) And probably about as many people get both of them. But seriously, uh, I did want to say, though, that earlier when he says, I ask myself the question, am I true? That's the the bumper sticker slogan. To which I was referring earlier, and I think that goes down in history as being about as ridiculous a statement as Elder Bednar's question, do you have the faith not to be healed? If I have this about correct in the talk, he's going to go ahead and quote some scriptures out of context that have absolutely nothing to do what he's talking about in order to give the semblance that his position is scriptural. Play the tape. Thus, by responding to my human falseness, with the help of the Church's doctrines and leaders, I can actually strengthen my testimony. Fortunately for me, I have enough personal weaknesses and falseness to last a lifetime. So in no other context can I imagine anybody in the LDS Church, uh, much less a leader, saying, fortunately, I have enough faults and problems to last a lifetime. The question is, why is he saying this is a good thing? Why is he saying this is fortunate that he has enough faults and problems that he has to work on repenting of to last a lifetime? Well, the answer seems pretty obvious. It's fortunate. It's a good thing because that means that no time in his entire life is he ever going to have to grapple in an intellectually honest way with issues relating to the LDS church, its leaders past or present, or its doctrine. He's got this covered. He is never going to have to investigate anything. He's never going to have to rethink his beliefs because he's got enough faults and problems to last a lifetime. And you can see why he does that. If, if his paradigm is that as long as I've got problems with myself when I look in the mirror and that such means the church is true— then thank goodness I always have problems with myself when I look in the mirror, because that way the church is always true. Right. It's almost like saying, this is a crazy analogy, but it just came to me, that you are in a situation where you are looking at going into a lion's den with a bunch of hungry lions, and you've got to open the gate to get into the lion's den. And that's going to be required of you at some point, but you don't want to go there any sooner than possible. But for some reason, as long as you are eating Oreos... You don't have to open that gate to go into the lion's den. As long as you're eating Oreos, you can put off that situation indefinitely. And in a situation like this, you would say, fortunately, I have enough Oreos over here to last a lifetime. Yeah, and it almost makes you wonder, as you said that, I'm sitting here thinking, 
you're if you're going to be that grateful for your own iniquity, your own uh, flawed, fallen nature, that you're you're and you're you know. In other words, if I'm setting up a paradigm that I cannot, I do not want to work through all of my iniquity in this life, then you almost have set up a paradigm where you welcome being iniquitous. You welcome being a sinner. And I don't mean in the way like, hey, we all have sins, but he's almost setting up a paradigm where he could seek out a sinful nature and it actually helps to support uh, his framing of the church. Yeah, wasn't it St. Augustine who was famous for saying something like, uh, dear Lord, please uh, make me so I'm not a sinner, but not yet. Right. And, and it, right. But even here, it's almost like, dear Lord, please make me a sinner. Give me more sins. Give me more iniquity. Because as long as I can keep looking at the mirror and finding problems in myself, I don't ever have to go back and examine the truthfulness of the church. I know, and I thought this was the whole LDS concept of salvation, is that you've got to obey the commandments with exactness, with strictness, perfectly in order to get to the celestial kingdom. Well, what happened to the story about his mom telling him when he was a kid in the bathtub with his brother? You are going to go to the celestial kingdom. And now he's apparently saying, well, not if I can help it, because as long as I can keep coming up with sins and doing bad things, I don't have to deal with church history. Thanks, mom, just the same. Right. Nope, exactly. So if you'll go on, and I think that now we're at the point, by the way, there is no transcript of this talk up at the BYU-Idaho devotional website, so I'm not able to exactly predict when he's going to say what he's going to say next. But I think it's about at this point where he starts quoting the scriptures out of context. As a result, I need never be thrown into doubt by any accusation against the church, its doctrines, or its leaders. Whenever I feel such doubts and the associated temptation to judge the church, I try to remember to turn a critical eye back on myself. When I do that, there is always something in my thoughts and actions that needs fixing or at least improving. If you and I act this way consistently, the adversary's attempts to sow doubts about ourselves or the church will paradoxically have the reverse effect his temptations, if we recognize them, can strengthen us. That should not come as a surprise. When Heavenly Father cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, knowing that they would be subject to temptation, he promised them that they and their posterity could transcend the adversary's subtle strategies. The Apostle Paul likewise knew that our mortal frailties, both physical and spiritual, can work for our good. He told the Corinthian saints, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. In fact, the Lord seems to have designed a mortal existence in which weakness and temptation can play a crucial, refining role. In Ether 12:27, he says, I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. The Book of Mormon prophet Jacob, father of Enos, taught this same principle in explaining how he and Nephi could command even the waves of the sea. Quote, Nevertheless, the Lord God showeth us our weakness 
that we may know that it is by his grace and his great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. Okay, so as I said, this is the point at which President Eyring quotes a bunch of scriptures that has nothing to do with what he's talking about in order to give the impression that what he's talking about is based in the scriptures. Also, before he got to quoting the scriptures, he says that this temptation comes from the adversary to doubt the leaders of the church. That's where he puts it in boldface, underline, all capitals. He's being very clear. Any inclination to doubt the leaders of the church, past or present, or its doctrine is a temptation that comes from Satan that must be resisted. Yeah, and it feels, again, we're just, at this point, we're laying it on really thick. There's so much shaming, blaming the victim. Anybody who falls away from the church, they got caught up um, with the adversary. They betrayed the Savior. Um, They didn't look in the mirror and ask if they are true. They didn't work out the sins in their own life, so it's safe to assume that they've got some really serious sins in their life that led them to doubt the church. This, this is really unhealthy. This is toxic, and I can only imagine that this is going to cause more harm in terms of the students listening to this talk being more judgmental towards their friends and family who are leaving the church. And one of the mechanisms that's, that's certainly intended is that to scare, if you were to go home and take him up on the earlier part of his talk where he mentions the book of Abraham, and you start typing into Google to see what that problem is, and you go down the rabbit hole and begin to sense that this thing is really messy, you now also realize through talks like this one that you're going to have to keep your faith crisis a secret and not tell anyone because to do so risk everyone around you judging you as less than because he is giving blatant permission to do just that, to label those who uh, no longer can find ways to believe as broken, as less than, and more importantly, as working with the adversary under his influence and betraying the Messiah. Yes, and I tell you something. One of the things I like to do is look at the reasons behind why talks are given. And it is apparent to me that this talk is given to try and deal with doubts that student members of the church are having about the church. Obviously, that's the whole point of this talk. And the only reason a talk like this would be given is because President Henry J. Eyring is completely aware that there is a growing level, a growing level to the point where it's become unacceptable, of students, LDS students, having doubts about the church and it impacting their testimony and perhaps even their activity and membership in the church. Only because of that would he ever give this talk. So the very fact that he's giving this talk shows that this is a huge problem among the college-age students of the LDS Church and that they are in higher education. They're encountering these kinds of things because what are they, they're researching. They're finding out things, and he's trying to put the kibosh on all of that. Now, the next thing he does is he speaks directly to the students. Up to this point, he's been talking about himself, what he does, with the implicit message, of course, that that's what you should do 
two. He's been using I statements so far. Now he's going to drop that charade and he's going to talk directly to the students and he's going to give them an experiment that he says they should try if they are currently battling doubts about the church. So play the tape because you've got to hear this one with your own ears. If you are currently battling doubts about the church, try the following spiritual experiment. Assume that the church is true, notwithstanding the human frailties of its members and leaders. Then look for at least one way in which you are not being true to the teachings of the church. Perhaps there is a transgression weighing on your mind and heart. Or perhaps you have treated someone poorly and have been delaying an apology. That is a common fault of mine. After pondering this regret long enough to feel your heart soften, seek direction from Heavenly Father. Consider talking with your bishop about the matter, even if it doesn't seem necessary. He can offer valuable counsel. He could guide you in seeking the forgiveness of persons you may have offended. When appropriate, he will specify the conditions that will allow you to again feel close to Heavenly Father and the Savior. Then liken yourself to Enos and Alma. Pray for feelings of remorse and for guidance in making things right. Having done that, pray for feelings of forgiveness. They may not come immediately. There may be more time and effort needed. But with your bishop's guidance and your own persistent efforts, the feeling of forgiveness eventually will come. As this happens, you can recognize not only the miracle of forgiveness, but also the power of the doctrines of the Church through which forgiveness has come. You can once again prove the truthfulness of the Church, notwithstanding the imperfections of its members. You can be sure that the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price are divinely inspired guides for our lives. You can have faith that the celestial kingdom is within reach. Okay, three points here. Notice that not once but twice, he says you can know the church is true because of your good feelings when you repent. You can know the church is true notwithstanding the failings of its members. And the first time he says it, he includes leaders in what he says. So he is aware that there are problems with moral failings of leaders of the LDS church. And he wants to put that to the side and not include that in a person's calculation as to whether the church is true. As if the church can consist somewhere in some kind of platonic realm where it's not actually consists of people. I mean, the church is the people. And in the LDS church, the church is primarily the leaders of the church. But we can't judge the church's truth based upon errors made by the leaders no, that doesn't count. So he says that twice. It shows he's aware of it and he wants to put a king's X on that. That doesn't count as something that can be legitimately doubted about the church. Now, when it comes to you, absolutely, you need to look at all the errors you make and that shows that you're not true. But the acknowledged errors, acknowledged on his part, though he doesn't say exactly what or how bad, though you and I both know what and how bad, the acknowledged errors of leaders of the church, they don't count into the equation. This is totally a double standard that he's promoting. A second thing he says, which is the first thing he says, is about 
hey, try this experiment. If you're if you're currently battling doubts about the church, because doubts are obviously something you have to battle. You're it's like you're struggling with your sexual identity. Well, you're battling with doubts about the church. Try this spiritual experiment, students. Assume that the church is true. Oh, that's a great experiment. Let's just start with the conclusion already firmly in mind and then interpret all the other evidence in light of the conclusion so that guess what you arrive at when you're done? The conclusion you started with. I mean, there's a line that used to be famous when I was a kid when the Bad News Bears movie came out and Walter Matthau is uh, collecting this ragtag bunch of kids for a baseball team called the Bad News Bears. And there's a scene in the movie, probably the most famous scene, where he writes on a chalkboard the word assume. And he tells everybody, he says, never assume anything. Because when you assume, you make an ass of you and me. And that's where he has the lines drawn in the word assume. So it breaks down to ass, you, me. Never assume because you make an ass out of you and me. And yet this is what his spiritual experiment is that he wants the students to do. Start with this. Assume that the church is true. Then look for at least one way that you are not being true to the teachings of the church. Spend all your time working on yourself because that's the real problem. You need to assume the church is true. And if you have a doubt that the church is true, assume it's true, where does that get you? Assuming the conclusion is generally considered to be a bad line of reasoning. Usually we want to follow the facts to reach a conclusion. Now let me go to Sherlock Holmes really quick, okay? Because this is something in a famous line from Sherlock Holmes where he's talking with Watson and they're talking about some evidence and Watson is, of course, drawing the wrong conclusions and Sherlock Holmes says, Watson, you got it wrong. He says, it's a capital mistake, Watson, to begin to theorize before one has all the facts. Inevitably, one begins to twist the facts to fit the theory instead of the theory to fit the facts. Now, when he puts it that way, it makes absolute sense. You don't want to begin theorizing before you have all the facts. By the way, notice that President Henry J. Eyring's uh, paradigm specifically excludes all the facts. He's not even going to investigate what the facts are. So he is, by definition, theorizing without all the facts. He will twist the facts to fit his theory, which is that the church is true, instead of the theory to fit the facts, which is what any reasonable, rational person would do if they want to come to a correct conclusion. So he says, assume that the church is true. And then when you're done correcting yourself, you'll find out that the church really is true because you feel good when you correct errors. This is a perfect circle of reasoning. And it reminds me of the scripture that says, and thus we see that the course of the Lord is one eternal round. There's two issues here. One is the moving of the goalpost. And here's what I mean. I actually don't have a problem with him saying, let's make the assumption the church is true. I get it. You're already setting up a bias. You're already making yourself not objective. It's not the best way to figure out whether something is true or not to start with that much uh, bias by beginning with an assumption. But in the scientific arena, we do something similar, which is we start with, an, with a hypothesis. The trouble is he changes the experiment after setting up the hypothesis. Here's what I mean. If I had an, a hypothesis 
that gravity is real. Um, and then I said, but then let's go ahead and add sugar and flour together and make some cookies. It's what he does. When he says, like, let's make the assumption the church is true, and then rather than try to figure out whether the church is true, instead, let's change to another experiment, which is to look in the mirror at yourself and re to repent of things that you could use some repentance on. In other words, give yourself something else to do so that you never have to go back and actually evaluate the assumption that you made. And every time you go to evaluate that assumption, he gives you something else to do. Now, it hit me, RFM, as you were going, uh, as you were articulating your idea there just a moment ago, I, I just thought of it. It's this idea that the church has set itself up in a way, the way this talk is framed, and it's a, and it's a very similar way that other church ecclesiastical leaders frame their uh, perspective on doubting the church. But I would be curious, because it seems like this question's not allowed, if I were to ask then how is one to decide? How is one to prove? How is one to figure out? If the Let's just assume, and I could ask this to any of them, Elder Oaks, Elder Bednar, Elder Holland, if the church is not true, can you give me a way in which to figure that out? Let's assume for a moment the church is not true. Is there a formula that you're willing to acknowledge would be sufficient at figuring that out. And you and I both know, RFM, that they would not want to touch that question. Elder Bednar would change the question. Elder Holland would lie about the answer. And Elder Oaks would tell us that questions are honored, but then would not even give us this time of day on the question. So Mormonism has its machinations to avoid this question. But what I just realized was, this question really is not, it doesn't have any kind of safe space to even be asked. Let's assume the church is not true. Give me some way at which to look at this thing and figure out that conclusion. And there's no answer no, out there. No, you're right. And it could never be out there as an answer because everything in the church starts with the assumption that the church is true. That is non-negotiable. That is the conclusion that everything else is based on rather than being a conclusion that evidence leads to. So you're right. There could be no discussion about that because that is what is already assumed at the outset of every discussion. I did want to bring up the fact that um, Elder Eyring in this clip we just played expands even more what he knows and what the students can know because they get good feelings when they repent. Not only do they know Joseph Smith was a prophet, not only do they know that Enos and all the younger were real characters, I think he's going to expand that to include Abraham and all the characters that we read about in all the scriptural accounts. They're all real characters because of this. He's also going to say here that you can be sure that the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price are divinely inspired. And you can have faith that the celestial kingdom is within reach, all because you have good feelings when you repent and correct bad behavior. Then after this, after this, he's going to play a clip. It's a, it's a video clip of a student. Um, his name's Taylor Olson. He's a student there at BYU-Idaho. Apparently, there was some sort of uh, competition or submission of different clips uh, to be used in this presentation 
So Taylor Olson's going to talk about, and there's a film of him being out there in the woods. It's played, if you look at the video of this uh, address, he's out there in the woods. He's hiking around. He realizes, dang, I got some minor sins, but I really need to repent of them. And I feel good about repenting about them. And so I know that God is mindful of me. And so this is a second witness that President Irie now plays in order to buttress his pretty bad argument. Yeah, it, it feels like no matter what, you have no choice. Either the church is true, and, and that's all you're left with, and then the other side of the coin is, and you are somehow broken if you think anything otherwise. Right, and by the way, he also covers his other base because uh, what you said prompted my mind to think, well, what happens if you pray for forgiveness and you don't feel peace? And forgiveness. Well, you remember he's already covered that base earlier in his talk when he says it may take some time for this to happen. Maybe, maybe a whole lifetime. We may have to figure it if out on the other if side. If you're lucky, one yeah. Oreo carefully eaten can keep you out of that lion's den for an entire lifetime. But no, everything's covered. Every possible counter experience to what he's teaching can be accounted for and explained away, all with the conclusion that the LDS Church is true. So if you want to go to this Taylor Olson clip, you can listen to him speak. And after that, President Eyring is going to give some concluding thoughts in which he gives one of the most incredibly unreasonable statements that I've ever heard anybody give in my entire life. But if you can play this clip, and if you can watch it on video, please watch it on video, because there's something about the video that I want to bring up and then tell a humorous anecdote after it's done. I'm grateful for the following insight provided by Taylor Olson and so many of you for com commenting on the discussion board. It was wonderfully difficult to choose just one comment to share today, but I'm sure that you'll enjoy Taylor's message as well as the marvelous videography work of our BYU-Idaho team, which was done just this past Friday. I feel most in touch with God when I'm in the mountains. I often go hiking so I can better experience the love of God and experience nature. On one of these hikes, I was doing a lot of self-reflection and introspection, and I was looking back at my past and I realized that there were a lot of things that I needed to put right. There were things in my past that I hadn't repented of. I had thought they were minor enough that I could move on without, um, without that repentance process, and I was feeling guilty for it, and so I realized that I needed to, to repent, and I needed to make those changes in my life. So I kneeled down right there in the woods, and I prayed and asked God for forgiveness of those things, and, and asked Him for the strength to be able to move forward with a better purpose and more diligence in following His commandments. When I finished my prayer and, and continued on my hike, I was blessed to experience the most incredible feeling of peace and joy. I knew that God loved me and that He was aware of me. It's those feelings that give me the motivation to do better in my life and to make correct choices. Okay, so you can see how this story by Taylor Olson plays into the overarching theme of President Eyring's talk. The thing I wanted to comment on is if you watch the video, there's a little bit of virtue signaling going on in the video. And by that, I mean Taylor Olson, who is likely a return missionary, has his temple garments on. You know that because you can see them. He's out hiking in the woods. He's got a red t-shirt on. He's addressing the camera and you can see clear as daylight, a white line around the back of his collar where his garments are revealed. So he's got these garments on under his t-shirt. Now, 
The only reason I remark on that is because it reminds me of this story. Uh, shortly after I got back from my mission, of course, I'm wearing my temple garments, and I'm trying out for a musical in Austin, Texas. It's the summer of 1981. I don't know anybody there, but I'm wearing uh, a t-shirt and jazz pants, right? But being a faithful Mormon, being a faithful Mormon, I have my garments on as well because that's how Mormons roll. Anyway, there's this other guy who I don't know from Adam, and I think the... Um, uh, the audition is over, and he comes walking up to me with a big smile on his face, and he says, Hi, what's your name? And I say, Radio Free Mormon. And he says, Hi, I'm Rusty. And he says, Are you Mormon? And I thought, How on earth does this guy know that I'm Mormon? And uh, all the stories about how complete strangers recognize somebody as a Mormon because of this beatific glow that emanates from their countenance came to mind. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a great story. And I said, why, yes, I am. How did you know? And Rusty says to me, he says, because Mormons are the only people I know who wear T-shirts under T-shirts. <laughs> so, so there was no special glow. It had nothing to do with the glow. It was all about, I was wearing garments under my t-shirt, and it was obvious to anybody with eyes. Okay, so that's my story about garments under t-shirts. By the way, even as a faithful Mormon, it didn't take me long to stop wearing my garments under my t-shirts for dance class, and also for auditions and for rehearsals. But now we get to the final concluding part, thank goodness, the concluding part of this talk by President Henry J. Iring in which he makes, uh, he concludes, he summarizes, and he makes another really boneheaded comment. Can you play the tape on that, Bill? I'm grateful to Taylor for sharing that wonderful testimony of repentance and forgiveness. I know that Enos, Alma, Abraham, and all other characters in our revealed scriptures are real. That knowledge has come by following their teachings and personal examples especially the examples of repenting and obeying. Fortunately, this test is repeatable. It is a lifelong cure for doubt and a prescription for unshakable faith. The Savior said it this way, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I am profoundly grateful for my testimony of the truthfulness of the restored gospel as contained in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I first gained this testimony from my angelic mother with the help of her and other faithful teachers, especially my father. My testimony steadily grew in boyhood. It became independent and strong as I began to read the scriptures and to seek divine confirmation of their truthfulness. In my adulthood, the church has come under increased scrutiny and attack, but I have felt well prepared, thanks largely to the teachings and testimony of youth. In addition, my faith has been strengthened through repentance. I can testify of the church's truthfulness because I am too often untrue to my sacred There covenants. it is, folks. That's the statement that I find head-scratchingly obtuse. Quote, I can testify of the church's truthfulness because I am too often untrue to my sacred covenants. I don't know really how to make fun of this because it makes fun of itself. As they say, this stuff writes itself. But that's the statement. 
He can testify of the church's untruthfulness because I am too often untrue to my sacred covenants. Because I'm not perfect, the church is true. Makes sense to me. Play the rest of it, Bill. I frequently fall short. When this happens, I may be tempted to put the blame elsewhere. However, I've learned that it is a blessing to have my conscience pricked and my pride revealed. Okay, so in this conclusion, he is going beyond what he said before. He is making explicit what was only implicit in what he said earlier. He says, I frequently fall short. When this happens, I may be tempted to place the blame elsewhere. In other words, when he falls short, when he commits sin, he may be tempted to blame the leaders. He may be tempted to doubt the leaders or the church. That's what he means by place the blame elsewhere. Here he's being explicit that people who doubt the church are projecting the blame that they themselves should be feeling for their own wickedness. He goes on, however, I have learned it is a blessing to have my conscience pricked and my pride revealed. So any doubt of the church or its leaders is because you are not only sinful, you're prideful. A person who is prideful doubts the leaders of the church or its doctrine. Only a person who is humble does not doubt. And this is where he is making things very explicit and he is putting dots on his eyes and crossing the T's of his ludicrous argument. And again... He's closing the door on any possible way in which we say, if the church was false, how am I to examine that in such a way that I could arrive at that conclusion? And again, I can't say this enough. As we're getting ready to go into the last statement here in this, you know, he finishes off the talk. This is a university president, a institution of higher learning. And this is the, this talk has so much idiocy. It has so much anti-intellectualism. It has a lack of any kind of critical thinking. It sets up so many logical fallacies. It has circular arguments. This, any other institution of higher learning would look at this guy, and I mean this, I mean this, and this sounds mean. This guy comes off as a moron. And he comes off in a moron, and yet he's the president of a university of higher learning. And he essentially says, we are about everything except for education, critical thinking, higher learning, and intelligence. We are the opposite of those things. And I am disgusted. If I'm honest, I am disgusted and appalled at how how anti-intellectual this talk is. And while he uses logical fallacies, he uses them to shame people and to hurt people who have lost faith in a thing that is demonstrably not what it claims I just to want be. to give a, a brief translation of what it was he just said. And I covered some of it before, but let me make it clear, because we'll just go to the end after this and then play the closeout song, which uh, I hope you'll follow my recommendation on this one, Bill. The translation... I definitely already, I already have it downloaded. <laughs> All right. The translation is, if you have doubts about the church or its leaders, it is because you are prideful and you want to place the blame elsewhere. What blame is that? Well, the blame that is actually yours because you are sinful. So the equation is simple. If you doubt the church, it is because you are sinful and you need to repent. So the effect of this is that nobody can ever legitimately criticize or doubt the church or its leaders if they are sinful. And since we are all sinful, nobody can legitimately criticize or doubt the church or its leaders. 
I know the word stupidest is not even a word, but it seems fitting here. This is the stupidest talk I've ever heard. You can coin it if you like, Bill. We'll give you credit for coining stupidest, just like Shakespeare coined the term unkindest, most unkindest. This was the most unkindest cut of all, for when the noble Caesar saw him stab, in gratitude more strong than traitor's arms quite vanquished him. Okay, enough of that. Okay, let's roll the tape. Personal shortcomings and the desire for repentance repeatedly turned me to the teachings of the Church and to its leaders for comfort and guidance. In the process of repenting, I received renewed assurance that the Lord is leading the Church. My faith and ability to transcend temptation increases. To paraphrase Paul, when I am spiritually weak, my reliance on the Church makes me strong. I am also grateful for my inspired leaders, especially my parents. My father has taught me to live by faith and the feelings that produce it. My angel mother has instilled confidence that I might qualify for exaltation. I know that she is doing so. And I plan to join her in the celestial kingdom. I testify that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is led by our Savior. I am grateful for the small role I play in it and for its huge role in my life. May we be blessed as we together advance the work of Heavenly Father's kingdom, repenting and increasing in faith as we go. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Well, that's been quite the tour de force of logical fallacies. One would almost think that maybe Daniel C. Peterson had ghostwritten this particular talk. However, in light of the fact, in light of the fact that his whole idea is to shame anybody who might even have the temerity to yield to this devilish temptation about doubting the church or its leaders, past or present. I think we should close out this episode with, I think it's the 1975 hit record by Shirley and Company. Shame, shame, shame. Shame on you.
motion If you get the notion You can't stop the blue Cause you 